0: and welcome to the latest episode of Texthelp Talks podcast, where we chat to experts from the education arena and the workplace to learn about their strategies for breaking down barriers, unlocking potential, and creating equality for all. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. You can do this through your preferred podcast player or streaming service. Search for Texthelp Talks and you should find us. In this episode, you're hearing from me, Donna Thompson, Marketing Manager at Texthelp, And I'm here with Sophie Coonan, Web Engineering Lead at Monzo. Sophie is passionate about web accessibility and keeping the web a fun and inclusive place for everyone. With her expert knowledge about web design and development, Sophie will be helping us to debunk some, six actually, common myths about web accessibility. So it's great to have you here with us. Sophie, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I don't know if I'd say I was an expert in web design, but um, definitely development. So Okay.
0: (laughs) We added another title there to you. (laughs) I'm happy to get that title, but you don't want to see what my design attempts look like. Uh, No problems. All right. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to debunking some myths, so why don't we just get stuck right in? Sure. So the first one then that we're looking at today is the majority of users don't have access needs. So let's think about what we mean by access needs first. So for something to be accessible, uh, we need to be able to complete a task we're trying to achieve without encountering any barriers or issues. And digital access is the ability to fully participate in the digital world. Um, digital access needs are needs which arise because of the effects of someone's disability when interacting online. So at Texel, we know that 15% of the world's population have a disability and in the uk alone 10% of the population have digital access needs so sophie as a senior web engineer what would you say to this myth
1: i think it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking there's like a normal or a diffi- or a, t- a typical user um but actually you know we're coming from a very narrow perspective when we're building websites and my abilities and experience shape how i approach the task of building a website so you know i'm um i'm I might be familiar with the icons that mean download or menu but some other people might not get that and it might not be as obvious um and I think um it's it's easy to accidentally use our own abilities and biases as as a kind of basis for the designs that we we put together like when I'm building a a website I'll use my my MacBook that I get from work like I've got fiber internet and um I've got I'm I'm cited, and so I might forget that the people who are accessing the thing I'm building won't have. They might not have super fast internet. They might not have a top of the range MacBook. Um, I have to make sure that I'm not only building apps for people like me. So there's so many different backgrounds, different requirements, different technology that people are using. It's not just kind of a physical thing. Um, I really rate the Microsoft Inclusive Design Toolkit, um, which says. Um, If we use our own abilities and biases as a starting point, we end up with products designed for people of a specific gender, age, language ability, tech literacy and physical ability. Those with specific access to money, time and a social network, which I think is a really key thing to think about.
0: Great. Yeah. Good resource there, too. You're right. Labels like typical and normal are really just not helpful. We're, We're all different. We all have different needs. And I guess we've got to be mindful of that when we're designing websites. Okay, myth number two, um, accessibility is optional. So we know that designing for everyone is really important, important sorry, and it's not just to be inclusive, but it's actually the law for many businesses. So in the UK, for example, we've got the public sector bodies accessibility regulations. And in the US, there's the Americans with Disabilities Act. In fact, speaking of America, almost 10 lawsuits are filed in the States against inaccessible websites every business day. And this number really is just on the rise. So Sophie, given that accessibility is a legal requirement for many businesses, what are some of the considerations that designers and marketers need to make?
1: So I think it's key to consider the fact that even though there haven't been any case cases that I'm aware of against um companies in the uk for not being accessible that's not an excuse for you know not actually make uh, not not taking the steps to require to make sure that we are complying with the law Mm -hmm. um and you know it's 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 kind of worth thinking well is it worth you know a link being a different color if it means that we're not doing something against the law and um Websites are listed in the Equality and Human Rights Commission's Code of Practice as one of the services to the public that should be considered covered by the Equality Act 2010, which makes it illegal to discriminate against people with disabilities, even if it's by accident. Um, So they talk a lot about reasonable adjustments. So things like, can you change the size of the font to make sure that it's not a fixed size? Um, Are disabled users able to get the information without being placed at a substantial disadvantage? Um and that applies as well if you get an external agency to build your website as well. And um the Europe, the sorry, the Equality and Human Rights Commission can actually conduct investigations, they can act over cases of persistent discrimination, and they can help someone prosecute a company. Um so, you know, I don't think it's it's a secret that we're our society is 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 becoming a little bit more litigious. Um so I don't think it's uh, it's fair to say that. We're never gonna have any case law for this kind of thing like they do in the States. Yeah,
0: they're definitely on the rise. Mm. Um, so taking accessibility into account not only benefits those with disabilities, but it benefits everyone. And that really takes us into our third myth, and that is access needs come from permanent disabilities. What are your thoughts about debunking this myth, Sophie? Yeah, so I think it's it's interesting to dive
1: into the kind of the con the concept of disability, right? Like It's not necessarily there is something wrong with a person. If someone has a disability, it means that society is not doing enough to accommodate their particular needs. So uh, I wear glasses for reading. I don't consider myself to have a disability because glasses exist and they make Mm -hmm. me able to see very clearly. So um, if, if society had enough adjustments and adaptations for people with other access needs, would they consider themselves to have a disability? And so anyone at any time can have access needs and they can be permanent, temporary or situational. Again, the inclusive design toolkit I mentioned earlier goes into great detail about these kind of things. So an example of a temporary impairment might be some kind of medical, medical condition um, or a situational impairment might be from the environment around us. So the other day I had people working on the roof and it was really hard mm-hmm. to hear what was Um, So, permanent conditions are the ones that we often tend to think about when it comes to accessibility. So, partial or full blindness, um, not having uh, both limbs, uh, sorry, both arms, um, having learning difficulties such as dyslexia, but a temporary impairment could be something like having visual aura from a migraine, um, getting repetitive strain injury from mouse usage, I'm sure we're all Mm -hmm. familiar with that these days, Mm -hmm. um, or having cognitive processing difficulties like brain fog um especially relevant for people who've um had covid uh, they might be suffering from things like that mm-hmm. and the situational things like i mentioned builders on the roof um having slow internet um or something like even a bright light on the screen uh, holding a baby is an interesting one like if you're if you're designing an app for for mothers and or parents say um is there a chance that the app user might be holding a child at the time like can you mm-hmm. use the app with one hand So even if you consider yourself not to have any form of disability, you could find yourself with one of those impairments at any point. Um, And we need to remember that those kind of um, accessibility requirements exist. And it's not just those
0: screen readers, for example, which is, as I said, the one
1: that people tend to go to. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So designing for accessibility is really about designing for universality. It's designing for everyone in every situation. And uh, so that websites and apps are usable by everyone no matter what they're doing or, or where they are. So that brings us nicely onto the fourth myth already. So that is content and design that can be accessed by all is accessible. So we've already touched on designing for accessibility means considering things like, um, you know, images, uh, t- alternative types on images and captions and videos, for example. So it's basically all the things that affect someone accessing your content but how well this content can be understood is also very important. And that's where readability comes in. So factors that affect readability include things like jargon words, uh, sentence length, even spelling and grammar mistakes. So to make your content more readable, you've really got to start using plain English. So Sophie, I would imagine there are other readability factors at play when it comes to learning the art of web development and really getting to grips with complex programming languages. Um, how do you try to make these programming languages more understandable?
1: That's a really interesting one. Um, so, I briefly briefly trained before I got into coding. I was training as a, as an English teacher. English is a foreign language. I actually learned some kind of useful tips for for conveying complicated uh, concepts to people uh, without like. Of, often, when you're teaching a foreign language, you you need to explain the meaning of a word without using the word, mm-hmm. and that is vital when you're teaching people to code. So you need to be able to explain what are basically quite com- complicated concepts in in web design and development, but you've got to be able to explain them in an accessible way that doesn't make people feel stupid. Um, and a, a great way of doing that is real world analogies. So I use those quite a lot trying to explain technical concepts in quite in kind of uh, understandable situations that you might not usually associate with um with with a technical concept so the one that comes to mind is when i was i wasn't teaching coding at the time it was speaking to some non technical colleagues but um i was trying to explain um an authentication flow that we were building on a web app and i used like some kind of ridiculous analogy about a secret clubhouse with like secret handshakes and mm-hmm. badges that you had to wear but you know it gets it gets the message across and it's memorable yes. as well um, story. It can be quite fun to try and think of some really absurd analogies for technical concepts, but it, but it makes it stick in your head.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, having that story element uh, on top of all the code Absolutely. definitely helps you remember it a bit better. Um, so looking at some statistics here, in the UK, the average reading age is just nine years old, and in the US, it's around eighth grade level, so that's age 12 or 13. So writing with inclusion in mind not only makes it easier for those with low literacy to understand content, it supports people with conditions or situations that can cause reading challenges. So just going back to what you said about situational uh, disability, Sophie, if you look at the way we consume content today, readability really matters to everyone, doesn't it? It
1: really does. Um, it's it's never been more relevant, especially coming from a bank where I work, you know, it's, it's hugely important that the people that we're doing business with can actually understand what they're signing up for and finance is famously something that's just really complicated um so at monzo we have a very specific tone of voice that is designed to make things as clear as possible without being patronizing it's approachable it's very simple we use abbreviations that you'd use in normal conversation we like english famously has like three words for everything so we (laughs) the simplest form of of language we don't try and be overly legal or overly kind of formal because it ultimately all it does is affect the comprehensibility of what you're writing Mm -hmm. and we've got a great guide to the tone our tone of voice on our website actually
0: which I really recommend looking at because it, it really is excellent oh great okay we'll check that out Um, okay, moving on to the fifth myth, which is that accessibility is a barrier to good design. We hear this a lot. Um, so as a senior web engineer, Sophie, what would you say to that? (laughs) I would say,
1: is it good design if it's not accessible? Um I think you know, I often find myself turning around to developers and saying, I you know, we can't do this because it isn't accessible. And the best designers that I've worked with have said, okay, well, let's find something that does work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people imagine that if, if your website is really, really accessible, it's going to be like white background times new Roman blue links with underlines, you know, Um, but it's, it's really not the case except as I said, accessible design is good design. If it works for everyone, it's a good design. And if it's a beautiful design that cuts out half of your user base, because it's unusable for them, is that something you really want to have associated with your brand? Mm -hmm. Um, So if, if, If you can, you've got this beautiful user interface that someone can't use the keyboard to navigate around. You know, are we really going to call that good? Um, It's it's rather than thinking of it as something that makes forces you to make an ugly or boring product, think of it as something that will give you a set of constraints to incorporate as you consider your design. Um, Which there's a brilliant article by Jesse Hausler, who's the director of product accessibility at Salesforce. Um, who wrote this article called Seven Things Every Designer Needs to Know About Accessibility, and it really is an absolute fountain of knowledge. Mm. Uh, well, but it's those constraints. It's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting challenge, right? But it becomes mm-hmm. easier once you become familiar with those constraints. It becomes second nature to you. Mm-hmm.
0: It's the fear of the unknown, maybe, at the beginning. Um, so it, it's so true. You know, at where we continue our efforts to be as inclusive and accessible as accessible as we can and we've actually just been through the process of creating a brand new website at uh, no main feat um, and it's more accessible than uh, you know the, the old website and to be honest we feel the design actually looks better than ever too so accessibility definitely hasn't been a barrier uh, to good design for us in this instance yeah. so okay are we going to say something more there Sophie sorry I interrupted you <laughs> I was just going to say um, the
1: gov.uk site is another example of something that's really simple but mm-hmm. so so accessible. It's it's really um it's an absolute feat of accessibility, I think. And yeah, okay, it's not the slickest, sleekest website, but you know exactly where to go, you know exactly what to click on, you know exactly what's happening. And when you've got to do something as tedious as filling out a form for some tax return or something, you want something that's really obvious and really clear. And I think they've mm-hmm. really nailed it. I use I use the Gov.uk
0: website a lot actually for inspiration. Oh, do you? Yeah, I I like that there's a lot of white space on their pages. Their pages don't seem to be too cluttered with a lot of content, which is good. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, we're on to the last myth already, number six. And this one is that accessibility is hard to implement. So for anyone wanting to be more accessible when it comes to web design, what would you say to them, Sophie?
1: I would say this one's kind of slightly cheeky because it is is hard Mm -hmm. to implement if you're doing it retrospectively. So if you've got this big, big web app, and I feel like a lot of professional web developers will have been in this position, right? When, you, when you're working on this big web app that was built before, I don't know, before your time, or maybe um, it just didn't have the time put into it to make it accessible for the beginning. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh God, we really need to make this accessible. And it's a lot of work. It can take a lot of time and it can cost a lot of money to go back and fix it up so it is accessible. So in that respect, yeah, it is hard. But if you think about accessibility from the start and you factor it into your designs and, and the way that you write your code, it actually doesn't have to be that challenging. It just becomes second nature. So really you wanna go with accessibility by default rather than accessibility after the fact, you know? Um, so there's a lot that we can do as web developers that will kind of give us accessibility for free um, just by writing HTML, right? So and there's something called semantic HTML, which is um, HTML elements that tell you exactly what they do, such as nav, which is used for a menu or button is used for a button that has a, it, something happens when you click it. You know, we've got link um, elements for links to different pages using the right ones, using the right headings in the right order, um, making sure that you leave the styling to CSS um, and keeping the HTML tags for the structural markup of the page. And all of this will help assistive technology to navigate a page just by virtue of the fact that you've used these semantic elements. And test you can test your site as well with things like screen readers. There's some built into um, Mac and you can get a free open source one for Windows. Um, and you can use the keyboard to check that you can actually navigate through and do your core user journeys just using a keyboard. So there's quite a lot that you can do um, as part of your development flow to make sure that you are building something accessible. Mm -hmm. It's building it in, isn't
0: it? You know, the semantic elements that you mentioned, it's like basic rules that you need to follow uh, to make it accessible. And once you do it once or twice, then it'll become second nature, you know, for every time.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you can make those a part of your code reviews, for example. Like if you're reviewing a pull request on GitHub, like you can make sure that to look out for those things. You can add accessibility checklist, your JIRA tickets, make sure that your designers are considering things like uh, labels on forms and um, color contrast. So making sure any kind of foreground text is easily distinguishable from the background um, Mm -hmm. and
0: things like that. Great advice, okay. And for marketers too, when it comes to accessible content, that readability element is so important. Um, And there are a lot of tools that can help at uh, that time of writing. Uh, when we were writing the content for our new website, we built our own uh, Reach Deck to help us. Um, we, we would have been lost without it, to be honest. The editor in Reach Deck really helped us in real time, highlighting any jargon words and long sentences, along with picking up on any spelling and grammar mistakes, too. So, being able to create accessible content in real time is so much easier, as you already alluded to, than having to go back and fix things or change things retrospectively for time and money. So Sophie, I think that's really us for today. We've debunked all six myths. Uh, We seem to have gone through them very quickly. Um, It's been great uh, debunking them with you. Uh, I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot from your expertise. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. No problems. Is there anything you would like uh, to leave our listeners with? Any final thoughts or any tips before we go?
1: Yeah, so I think my biggest takeaway for people is don't think of it as this massive mountain you've got to climb or this massive barrier to building something, just learn the basics and then incorporate them into the things you're building. Um, You can check out my blog at localghost.dev, which has a blog post about this exact topic as well as some others. Um, So I'm always happy to chat about accessibility on Twitter. Uh, You can reach me at, at type underscore underscore error as
0: well. Love it. Thanks, Sophie. And if you'd like to learn anything more about our accessibility journey or any of our accessibility products, you can head over to our website at text.help forward slash new look. That's all lowercase, text.help forward slash new look. Don't forget to subscribe to Text Help Talks on your prepared podcast player or streaming service to catch our next episode. Thanks again and bye for now. Goodbye.